You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. I'm just going to introduce Joe Johnson, MP, the chair of this next session, which I think will very much complement and follow on from the previous session. Uh, Joe is one of the uh, Anglo-Indian experts in, in Parliament and indeed outside. He's the author of Reconnecting Britain and India, Ideas for an Enhanced Partnership, uh, a collection of essays. Some of the people here have contributed to that collection. He is a very prominent figure in the uh, foreign and commonwealth element of uh, the Houses of Parliament, and he's an associate editor of the Financial Times, having worked there in an assortment of roles for 12 years. So what better capable hands than to lead you through this next session until lunchtime? Joe Johnson. Thank you, Julia. Well, I'm very grateful for so many plugs for the book I edited. It means I don't have to do it myself. And I will ensure that Dr. Tarua Julie gets his copy. I'm very embarrassed uh, that he didn't. Um, Earlier in the session, we heard from Mihir Bose about the incredible progress uh, that India has made. And of course, that's right. Uh, This year is another anniversary, which is it's the 20th anniversary of the commencement of India's economic reforms. And we all know what incredible changes have come about over the two decades that have passed. I remember when I first visited India, when I first lived here, in fact, in early 1991, um, I saw there was a, I went and saw uh, Sachin Tendulkar scoring centuries in Jaipur, a very memorable day there. And of course, there was a Gandhi uh, in charge, uh, Rajiv Gandhi, uh, shortly before his assassination in May 1991. Well, the same is true today. Sachin Tendulkar is not quite scoring centuries, but he's still very much the star of the Indian team. And there is, if not a Gandhi in uh, in, uh, in Seven Race Course Road. There is one in number 10, Janpath, still very much running things. And there are, of course, Rahul and Priyanka in the wings. So India changes, and yet some things stay the same. Corporate India, though, has definitely changed. Corporate India is India's calling card on the world stage right now. And to discuss the incredible changes that corporate India uh, is seeing are some very distinguished panelists. We're very lucky to have with us today, starting on my left, Vinita Bali, who is the Managing Director of Britannia Industries, one of the country's preeminent food groups, famous, of course, for uh, the biscuit brands Britannia and Tiger. And uh, her company makes 433,000 tonnes of biscuits a year. And Vinita is, uh, in addition to that, that's a lot of biscuits. Vinita is one of corporate India's most celebrated leaders, uh, ranked by the FT, no less, as one of the world's top 50 women in business. And she became MD at Britannia after 16 years at Coke and Cadbury Schweppes. To my immediate left is Mr. Vikram Singh Mehta, uh, the celebrated chairman of Shell in India, uh, a former civil servant. Uh, Mr. Mehta has almost been a lifer at Shell, which he joined in 1978. Uh, sorry, 88. 88. Um, and he was recently named Asia House's Businessman of the Year in 2010 and one of the contributors uh, to the book that I'm pleased to see been mentioned so many times already today. Um, on my immediate right is Mr. Nasser Munji, chairman of DCB, one, very much one of the great and good of corporate India, who sits on no fewer than 15 boards, though I'm told that under the new Corporate Act that's coming in, that will be cut down to a modest 10 but it will still, I hope, include the board of Britannia Industries um, on which you presently sit. So I hope that stays the same. And to my far right 
is Rupa Purushottaman, um, who heads the research effort of Everstone Capital and has, was the co-author, I think, of the Great BRICS uh, acronym. So credit to you for that famous bit of marketing for Goldman Sachs. And Rupa is now running the Avasara Leadership Program for Girls, which is a scholarship uh, program for girls who would otherwise be dropping out of school. So as per the previous panel, we're going to ask the panelists to speak for a rigid five minutes. Uh, we, there's a heavy demand for questions from the floor, so I would ask you please to keep your remarks tight. And we're going to start, Vinita, with you, if I may. Okay, well, it's, uh, it's a very vast topic, business responsibility and everything that follows from there. So what I'd like to talk about is really three things. Um, you know, when we talk about business responsibility, I'd like to think of it as starting with individual responsibility because businesses are made up of individuals. And if individuals act and behave with responsibility and accountability to all their stakeholders, I think automatically business responsibility would be ensured. Um, however, that's easier said than done because there are a lot of areas that come into play when we talk about business responsibility, corporate social responsibility, governance and so on. And in the end, all of these are related because if we think about business as being a microcosm of the communities we live in, the society we live in, uh, the times we live in, then it stands to reason that if businesses think about the work they do from a comprehensive and a holistic perspective, we would not have as much debate and discussion as we do on what is good governance and what is not. At the end of the day, governance is really all about clarity, which says what is business responsible for, what are other stakeholders responsible for, what are policymakers responsible for, and if each of these stakeholders understand their responsibility and act in accordance with this responsibility, we would not be confronted with issues of what is business responsibility and what is corporate social responsibility. I like to think of corporate responsibility, not corporate social responsibility, because I think if each business were to think about embedding into its business model, the entire group of stakeholders, whether it is community, the environment, consumers, customers, shareholders who've invested in the business, then we will progress and we will think about businesses that are doing well as well as doing good. Right now, there seems to be a debate which says if you've got to do well, you know, sometimes you sacrifice the doing good and that's not necessarily so or certainly I don't believe that that is the case. I think I'd finally like to uh, end with saying that um, if there is good governance and if people understand the value of good governance, we will also get away from a situation where a lot of stakeholders are wary of business, a lot of businesses are wary of government policies, government is not fully committed to what the business is going to do. And we end up with this confusion around us where everybody is not quite sure what the intent of the engagement is. I think the debate has to be far more open, the debate has to be far more collaborative, because 
the issues that we are dealing with, whether it is from a policy point of view or a business point of view, are too large for any one stakeholder to take the reins and run with it. So I would end by saying that business responsibility starts with individual responsibility. It starts with clarity around governance, and it starts and hopefully ends with a rich dialogue and debate, not an argument, but a dialogue and debate on how collaboratively business policymakers, the government, and every other stakeholder, including you know, activists, can work together mm -hmm. to create a better future for our companies, for our communities, our countries, and the world. Thank you. Vikram. Sorry. Uh, thanks. Let me start by just placing this whole subject within uh, the context of the uh, changing world within which business operates. Uh, there are three discontinuities that I think we have as businessmen to take into account. The first is, as, as was mentioned earlier in the earlier session, the people are restive. Uh, people are demanding greater transparency. They are unhappy with the established institutions of corporate and, uh, and political governance. They want a redefinition of the social contract. Uh, the Anna Hazare movement, the Occupy Wall Street uh, phenomena, these are symptoms of, of, this, of this restiveness. Second discontinuity is the economics of globalization is outpacing the politics of globalization. Uh, multinationals uh, like Shell will certainly source from one country manufacture in another and sell to a third. Um, but we have to be clear that the world is not a, a, a village, that uh, geography is not history. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, it is obvious that uh, Francis Fukuyama's uh, assertion uh, regarding the triumph of liberal democracy in, uh, and, and, and his statement that there is an end to history uh, has been very effectively countered by what Thatcher said at the time, it is the beginning of nonsense. Um, the world, people are asserting their individual identities, people are rooted in their regional, local, ethnic, ascriptive uh, uh, identities. And companies have to focus on those social issues, those local issues. The third, I think, discontinuity that we as businessmen have to recognize is that the, the pendulum of regulation has, uh, is no longer shifting from the extreme of market fundamentalism on one hand to the extreme of direct state socialist control on the other. The pendulum is swinging, no doubt, but the swing is much shorter. And the relationship today between the market and the state is a fluid relationship, but it's an inextricable relationship. Now, against, these, against this backdrop, it is clear that the assertion that business is, you know, the business of business is business is complete nonsense. Uh, this was the assertion that Milton Friedman made, and it is a nonsense. No business can succeed if they believe in that assertion. But equally, society cannot stay on the path of sustainable development if they don't involve business. Now, I think that the issues of philanthropy or corporate social responsibility, call it what you will, and I personally don't like any of these terms, is actually got to be looked at from this particular platform. 
And I have two models, which I'll very quickly sort of uh, put down based on my experience of Shell in India, that will give you an idea of what I would prefer as the focus of social responsibility. And the first is, um, we were building um, a big pr uh, terminal in the state of Gujarat. We had to quarry rock from uh, a place which was 120 miles away from the construction site. We did a survey and we discovered that there was one fatality every week on the road, on the one road that linked the quarry to the, to the site. This was quite clearly unacceptable. We therefore imposed on our contractor, uh, contractors the several demands. We insisted that uh, they drive, drivers drive no more than eight hours a day. And we installed systems in their truck such that they, the engines didn't start if they actually exceeded that time limit. We checked their air, air pressure. We refused to allow them to drive uh, in uh, single, we, I mean, uh, alone. We insisted on convoys. We, of course, uh, made sure that the, 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 the loads were, 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 um, uh, were within limits. The drivers and the owners were very upset by this because their remuneration was actually linked to the speed of delivery. They went as far as the chief minister of the state to protest. Now, eventually, we did get up what we did get what we wanted, and uh, and and the ultimate outcome was a spectacular success. We had one fatality in in 24 months of operations. Now, the point about this example is not to sort of state the success of Shell. It's really to make one simple point that the success of this particular example actually reverberated around the transport community in Gujarat. And it changed the way people started to address the whole issue of road safety. Now, one could argue that this is actually Shell doing its business, and therefore it's not social responsibility. It's not in any way a form of philanthropy. My own view is that, in fact, the, the, this example is an, one way of contributing to public, uh, to public welfare. Road safety is a critical issue in our country, and I think in that small region, we made a difference. A second example, and my final point, is really that social responsibility, philanthropy, cannot succeed in a country like India unless it, is, it involves more than just the signing of a check. Philanthropy, monetary philanthropy, is the easiest thing for a company to do. We can sign a check and we can then back off. That is not going to address the systemic, the institutional issues confronting this country. Now, what we try to do is, in indoor air pollution, is one of the biggest uh, uh, causes of respiratory illness and death in this country. We discovered some NGO that had developed a technology to manufacture, to develop, uh, to make smokeless stoves. We partnered that uh, NGO, and we identified a few uh, villages in the state of Maharashtra. And the idea of this model was very simple. Shell will fund the development of the stoves and the production of it, and will also deploy its marketing and management skills. The NGO will, of course, be the forerunner of, of technology, and the villagers will, mock, will sell these stoves and generate their own income. It's again been a success. We have created a company now, and our intention is to basically um, sell a million stoves. Here the point is that this example of a partnership whereby different members of, the, of this consortium bring their strengths to the table 
in order to address the deeper concerns, deeper systemic concerns, is I think what I would say needs to be the, the focus of companies in India today. That I would describe as real, sustainable uh, social responsibility. Thank you, Vikram. Well, good afternoon. Milton Friedman was a professor of mine, and I was going to start with that quotation on business of business <laughs> is business. Uh, we've come a long way from there. What I thought I'd talk about today, taking off from both Vinita and Vikram and not covering the same ground, is two issues, two points. One is the interface of corporate, the corporate sector that's emerged in the last two decades. And as the chairman mm -hmm. rightly said, it's become a formidable force. It drives the Indian growth story. Um, and it's the critical link now is the interface between the new corporate sector, the new market economy, and the government. The government, in my view, is very much, hasn't gone through the reform it needed to go through. It's still a Soviet state. It thinks in Soviet terms. Um, and it has, in a sense, its institutions have remained the same as a planned economy would require. The parastatals, a whole range of things that function. So I think now we're coming to a stage where this new corporate India that's emerging requires a state that is responsive to the new market economy. So the institutions of the state will have to go through a lot of transformation. Just to give an example, today many corporates are burdened by the responsibility of building their own infrastructure. They have to do their power supply, they have to do their logistics, they have to do a whole range of things. So there is this whole issue. The second um, uh, issue that I thought I'd flag, and this is going to be perhaps the most important element that will change the way corporate India, not only India, but corporate world thinks, is sustainability. I think sustainability is coming onto the agenda in a very, very large way. The new global reporting formats that are going to be required uh, for the corporate is going to be extremely, extremely complex. Um, and the idea that you just do financial reporting is like looking and driving by looking, at the, uh, looking into the rearview mirror. Uh, we're going to require a new mindset, a completely different way of thinking about it. And global reporting uh, will require integrated thinking. There's no, there's no way that we could work the same way as we have in the past. Companies will need to have integrated systems that create lasting value. So there's a whole nature of how corporates think, how managements actually function that's going to change. Uh, there is this element of take, make, and discard as a principle. There's no infinity in this at all. And in fact, all your, all your data will tell you that, um, uh, uh, that, that um, uh, this is business as usual is not going to succeed. Things have to change. Everything is going to have to change. Uh, expectations of stakeholders are changing, as was mentioned earlier. Different stakeholders, not just the shareholders. Um, therefore, I think mindsets will have to change. How governments think, how corporates think. Entire mindset change. I sit on a lot of corporate boards. I can see 
that we are nowhere near changing those mindsets yet. We are still steeped in the past. The worst first decade of the 21st, uh, 20th century, I mean this last decade of the 20th century, or the first decade of the 21st century, has been almost a, the silly season, if you like, in corporate thinking. We've, we've gone through a whole process, a regurgitation of what needs to be done. The next decade will be about how we come to terms with what we're going to have to do over the rest of the century. Uh, and that sustainability will be a key criterion in this whole process. So let me leave you with these two thoughts, the sustainability issue, the requirements of global reporting, the importance of completely integrating thinking within the corporate uh, that incorporates all stakeholders. Um, there are serious problems here and I don't think we've come to address them yet. Uh, we have a long way to go. So I want to leave you with uh, my favorite quotation from Woody Allen. Confidence is what you have before you understand the problem. <laughs> Thank you, Nasser. <laughs> Rupa. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm going to blame my ADD for this um, and basically say that I read the first three words of the title and I'll focus my comments on business responsibility and philanthropy. And I'll just spend 30 seconds giving a little bit of background um, because I think my, I have three messages but they're pretty schizophrenic and there's a reason for that. Um, I moved to India six years ago and I moved with a group to start a company, a private equity fund. Um, and one of my stipulations when I moved here was that I wanted to spend half my time on girls' education. And from all the macroeconomic research and so on, this was just something that I really wanted to focus on. So once we moved here, I think my colleagues would now say I probably spend 90% of my time on a project that we incubated within the company, um, which is an independent nonprofit institution. It's called Afsara. Um, and I won't spend much time on it, but it's focused on girls and, and education and leadership. And so when I kind of think about this topic, I feel like I speak from three different hats. One is someone who's been part of an organization and looked at other philanthropic and nonprofit organizations to support, um, either through funding or through other means. Um, second, as sort of this incubation startup project within a, a business um, environment, but that was really focused on creating an independent institution in the nonprofit sector. Um, and thirdly, as the founder of a nonprofit um, and, and trying to work with the business sector. So I think, you know, my first big message actually is very close to what Vikram mentioned earlier. I think to my friends and my colleagues in the philanthropic or in the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector, uh, I, we, we focus on the business um, sector or corporates as uh, providers of capital. And I think we overemphasize that relationship, and I've seen this time and again. And just from my experience of being able to incubate this project um, within our own company, but also by leveraging sort of partnerships that we've had with other corporate entities, some of the biggest problems of a startup that any startup faces, if you're a venture business, um, you know, in any other sector, but just things like professional services, legal, accounting, there's a lot more that we could probably work together in the philanthropic sector to not have to recreate the wheel every time we do something, um, but also work more closely on these kinds of things that require more time and commitment rather than uh, financial capital. I think the second big message I would say is to my colleagues in the business sector, which is that we, I think, have lost the plot a little bit um, in India with focus on <coughs> scale. And we, we are just crazed about scale in everything. And I, there are good reasons for that. We have to generate 10 million jobs a year. We have, you know, 
huge scopes. If you look at anything in terms of health and nutrition and education that we need to, to close. But I think we've um, fooled ourselves in the development sector and in the corporate sector that we're going to have one magic bullet, you know, technology, then microfinance, then education, then back to technology. We keep going around and everyone's trying to find that really sexy new thing to fund that's going to hit a lot of numbers and that's going to do it at a low ticket size. And quite frankly, particularly for India, given our heterogeneity, it's just not going to work that way. So we really need to kind of get back off of that um, obsession with scale while understanding that it's probably going to be more likely that it's a lot of small successes that need to weave themselves together for us to really think about addressing a lot of our major development issues. The last big thing that I would say is that, <coughs> and this is both, this is kind of to everybody, um, you know, I think we've come back into uh, fashion, and maybe this is because I'm an American, I grew up in America, um, but de Tocqueville and his big quote on self-interest properly understood has really come back into vogue, particularly in the States, um, in Europe, and all these questions with inequality. I think for India, this is our time to really understand what that quote means. And I feel like for all of us, we always talk about self-interest, um, but if you think about it properly understood, that's a really important component. Um, and we really have to pay attention to everyone's self-interests. We might, in some sense, we're bipolar. We think we're gonna grow 10% one day, the next day we're falling off a cliff. But this is the time where if we can actually really think about our roots and our fundamentals in terms of building that, that environment to keep growing at probably what is more likely a 6.5% growth rate, but a very, that's a very decent growth rate to live on, we can actually provide um, you know, the environment that will keep us, that will make that sustainability actually exist. Um, so I would just say the last quick thing is that the focus on growth to take care of our problems is clearly not going to work because if you look at certain things, particularly when it's related to socioeconomic issues, things related to gender and health, it gets worse in certain places as we're growing and as we're getting richer. And if we focus on handouts, again, a lot of the issues that we're talking about with corruption just gets even worse. So we really have to focus on the more pragmatic and messier in between. Thank you, Rupa. Right. Before throwing it over to the floor, I'm going to ask um, a question to each of our panelists, and it's going to be the same question, really. Um, have you, as a manager, and, or as a board member, or as a chief executive or chairman, ever encountered corruption in your company's company or in your sector? And if so, how did you, as a manager, board member, chairman, CEO, deal with it? If I can start with you, please, Benita. Well, the answer to your first question is yes. Um, it's hard to do business in India without being confronted with uh, a demand which is somewhat uh, misplaced. But I think the way we've dealt with it is really to say that there's got to be uh, a solution to it. And, um, you know, in this case, we were, we, the industry was working on uh, um, a reform in excise and other duties, and uh, certain demands were made, and we said no. It took us about 18 months longer, and it took a lot of energy and a lot of meetings that would have been unnecessary if we were talking about good governance. But at the end of 18 months, the industry did get uh, what it wanted, uh, which was fair, which uh, came out of a lot of engagements and discussions. Really, the problem went far more, you know, in terms of hierarchy, it went to a level which it needn't have gone to if the people who were supposed to do what they were meant to do did their work in the first place. And, you know, there was good data, there was good economics behind the whole thing. It made sense 
it made sense for industry, it made sense for uh, vendors to the industry, and it actually made sense for the government because it was a win-win. But it took us 18 months longer, a lot of effort, uh, something which could have been done with a lot less effort, a lot more quickly, and for everybody's mutual benefit. Thank you, Vnita. Vikram. Well, the answer is yes. So we've uh, been confronted with requests time and time again. We have not uh, accepted uh, any such request. Any individual in the company that even contemplates uh, uh, such a request risks his job. Oh, it ranges from, well, very quickly, I mean, from the, from, the, from the insignificant. We had a petrol pump. We completed the petrol pump in Chennai. Uh, superintendent engineer asked for 10,000 rupees, uh, and we refused to give it to him. The next day, they dug up the front of the petrol pump, and the plant, I mean, the, the, the outlet was closed for a whole year. Uh, we had to get it uh, approved all the way up through the central cabinet minister who, happens to, who happened to have been at one time the petroleum minister, and that's how I knew it. But that's just a, that's a small example to, a, you know, to examples where <clears throat> we had a, literally a billion dollar project on the table. We, we were on the verge of getting it when I was called by an exceedingly senior person in the government that refused to see him, and we canceled the project. But, so we have it. The point, I think, the important point, though, which is a very positive in a negative frame, you know, within a negative frame, is that Shell today has a two and a half billion dollar business, which has grown over the last decade or so. It has not paid a single rupee. We have had many, many uh, setbacks. I've just given you a couple. We've had delays. We've lost business, but we have not made a single payment. Now, the last point I'll make is that does not mean that there have not been instances of corruption within, amongst the employees of Shell. So there have been people who have tried to cut corners in Shell you know, and lots of details, and each one of them has lost his job. Great. Thanks, Vikram. Nasser, may I ask you the same question? Well, the, question, uh, the answer is yes, in so many different varieties of ways. In my own bank, there's been fraud, there's been corruption, there's various branches. Uh, what you need to do is push the integrity bit. We have, we give no, uh, no, uh, uh, no leniency. So even people who are caught will, 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 be, will have a police complaint filed against them, even if they pay back the money. So in a sense, the message has to be very strong that this institution does not uh, tolerate this type of behavior. But what's, what's really worrying about at the broader corporate level is where, again, it comes to my point on the interface between companies and government. Uh, Companies that I know, I've been on the board of companies which, which have been working on utilities, for example, in infrastructure. Uh, and state governments refuse to pay their receivables unless they're paid. And you're, you're on a catch-22 because, you know, you have substantial receivables and you can't get them back unless you pay. And, of course, we don't pay, in which case we don't get the receivable. Uh, so the, co the costs of... Con, uh, you know, of, of challenging uh, 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 the corruption cycle is very large. Uh, and I think we pay the price. Uh, and that's part of the process. Great. Rupa, your experience is slightly different. So I think I'll turn over to the, to the floor and seek questions directly from the audience. Over there in the front with the, from the Planning Commission, if I remember. Yes, very much maligned Planning Commission. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, point that I wanted to make was uh, addressed to Nasser and also brings from Rupa's point that there is heterogeneity in India. There's so many different choices we can see. 
and you talked about the relationship of the government, uh, the companies with the government and the state. And in India, actually, we have 29 states. There is a union government in 28 different states, which are actually competing to attract investment, also to, uh, for corruption issues. But there is a range of options you can do, and states are learning from each other. So you shouldn't think of the monolith sarkar symbolized by the planning commission we so wanted, but the fact that states and states compete on different levels. The economic freedom of the index of the states that it comes out every two years says the most free state in India is not Haryana and not Gujarat, but Tamil Nadu. You know, and um, you know, in various parts in the northeast, there is some movement in Meghalaya. So the, you should look at how we can work state by state by state and help states learn from each other, build their, the relationship between the uh, businesses and states. And Ms. Vinita made an interesting point about a dialogue uh, with all stakeholders. But my understanding sitting in Delhi is that the dialogue is way too much in English and way too little in Hindi or in Marathi or in you know, Manipuri or anything else. So we, if we can have this dialogue with all stakeholders in a language that people can understand and relate to and not just all of us sitting in this room or readers of the Economic Times or Financial Times. Thank you. I'm going to take a couple more questions and the, the lady there with her hand up. Hi, my name is Amy Lin. Several of the panelists have mentioned uh, the need to consider the different stakeholders involved in business. Can you talk about how businesses can include the bottom uh, of the economic pyramid, the poorest uh, consumers, either as consumers or also as suppliers? Thank you very much. Okay, Mihir, um, quickly at the front and then we'll ask the panelists to respond to each of the three. My question was to following on from what NASA said, that the state still has the Soviet system of planning. But actually, even when the state before liberalization encouraged monopoly capitalism, the type not even seen in America, after all, the Billas had one car that they could make and the Tatas had one car. So isn't the nexus between business and the state part of the DNA of India? After all, even the great Gandhiji, as originally Naidu said, it pays a lot for you to travel third class on the train and it was financed by the Birlas. What has happened is corruption has become much more. I'm not saying the Birlas were ever corrupt. I'm sure they're the most honest people on earth. But nevertheless, and the point is that that is built in the DNA and that's grown. So there is no, one can't see a solution to this, can one? Okay. Great, thank you very much. So three different points, um, heterogeneity and the extent to which competition between India's states is going to be a positive force for good governance. Um, Vikram, will you be able to take that one? And then I'm going to ask Vinita to respond to the question about the bottom of the pyramid. And then Nasser, if you would respond, please, to whether corruption is just inevitable and unsolvable, if that was the gist of Mihir's question. Yeah, uh, short answer. I mean, yes, I completely agree. All, I think all businessmen see India do not regard India as one sort of monolith of homogenous geographic entity. They see it as divided into region states and they indeed they are indeed gravitating towards those states that are, that are, that are most uh, welcoming. I mean, we have a specific example. We were going to build a bitumen plant in the state of Uttar Pradesh. We acquired the land, we, we got all the approvals until one day we were asked for a, a sum of money. We moved out of Uttar Pradesh and moved the, 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 the location to Gujarat. We had the plant running in six months' time. So there is indeed competition, and businessmen are not, uh, are not averse to actually you know, recognize the challenges, I mean, recognize the competitive spirit among, within states. Um, you know, and frankly, uh, you know, if, if a business is actually just focused on, let's say, the southern region of India, they're, they're covering a market for 250 million people. It's a pretty large market. Great. Benita, on the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. I'd just like to sort of uh, uh, 
you know, endorse the point that has just been made. I think there are, frankly, a lot more conversations taking place in, uh, you know, uh, in local languages, whether it's a Marathi or a Gujarati or a Kannada, because as businesses, you're looking at where the market is, where the investment is required, and how to deal with the local governments. And, you know, to that, we're right now in Britannia, we're setting up new manufacturing locations. We started at the same time in three different states. The difference is in one state, you know, the biscuit is being produced at the factory and is being sold. In the other state, the factory is still coming up. And in the third one, we're still waiting for approval of land. And, you know, work began simultaneously in all three. So there is a difference. Uh, coming to the whole question on uh, bottom of pyramid or base of pyramid, I think there are lots of businesses in India which actually have a business model that profitably caters to base of pyramid. And I'm talking about the word profitably uh, very conscientiously because without that, you can't have a business model that is sustaining. So uh, in the company I work with, we make and sell biscuits. Uh, the lowest price biscuit we sell is for two rupees. It's seven biscuits. And frankly, it doesn't get cheaper than that. You know, a banana today costs you about two rupees. Um, the reason why that is important and critical to us is because as a category, you know, biscuits is very pervasive. 70% of Indian households, whether they are in urban or rural India, consume a biscuit. So in a rural India, you might have a local bakery that you go to to buy a biscuit. The important thing is that whether it is localized or it is a national brand like ours, there are enough business models to cater to that base of pyramid. And if I were to juxtapose on that another statistic, which I think is very relevant when we are talking about business in India, and that is that 75% of India is self-employed. And that includes your little Kirana shop, your you know, little guy who's making bread in the morning and uh, selling it within a localized area. So when we look at those models, it is not a surprise that when you talk about something like food, which is just basic, basic requirement, only 9% of food that is consumed in India is actually branded and packaged and sold. 91% of it is made and sold and distributed by individuals who are in business. So there are a lot of different models that cater to base of pyramid in India. It's branded and packaged, large companies like ours, where we've had to figure out a business model that can effectively compete with local competitors. And I can tell you it's very hard. The other thing that also that does is it generates a lot, lot of local employment. Um, you know, whether you're in the business of crushing cane to convert it into sugar or whatever, those kinds of industries generate a lot of local employment. Um, and that, frankly, I believe is what is sustaining a lot of India's growth. Um, you know, whether it is the six and a half or eight percent or whatever we choose to be. I think it's a lot of people self-employed uh, generating business for themselves that is actually keeping a lot of Indian growth going. Yes, sir. Do you want to take on Mihir on sure. pessimism? Um, well, I think there's a huge note of optimism actually coming through. Um, uh, in the past, this nexus between government and corporate sector was very close. Now it's much less so. It exists for some, it doesn't exist for others. And you can actually quite get on quite happily if you don't participate in that process. So at least there is a whole new openness that's, that's emerged. In fact, the system also leaves those who are non-corrupt alone. 
you know they won't bother them too much because they know they're not going to get anything out of it and they know where they can get their money out of it so in a sense the system is adjusting to itself um but my worry is that you know we create laws which then and systems by which uh, gives power to the commissars that that is the problem the tax administration for example the tax administration in india is ludicrous i'm going to start a huge public debate on tax administration there's not a single company that i'm on the board where we don't have ludicrous claims by the state which has nothing to do with the law now you know i think these things have to change uh, these things in a modern economy we cannot have the government not observing its own rules and the way it's applied to the corporate sector while you expect the corporate sector to follow all rules so i think there's going to be a thank you okay we've got time for two more questions and i'd like one of them if possible to be about philanthropy so rupa can okay we can any talk anyway or, okay <laughs> well we don't have any specific question yes okay at the back please hi my name is samira ayengar and i work with theater um in india can you hear me yeah yeah so in india usually when uh, you talk about uh, csr or you talk about philanthropy uh, the sectors that are uh, that seem to easily come into understanding are health um education and uh, poverty um my question to anyone who would like to answer it is how do you view uh corporate responsibility in the intangible areas like the arts um and how do you view that uh yeah how would, what would what would be your take on that okay thank you very much we'll hold that thought and over there hi um rupa subramaniam from the wall street journal and my question is to what extent is corporate social responsibility in india a substitute for the government's ineptitude in certain areas and so really why is the private sector engaged in corporate social responsibility it's an old question but i thought i'd throw that out um and a related question is when you're building your own infrastructure you're building your own roads you're providing supplying your own power how does that take away from the idea of being philanthropic or, or performing csr uh, to to my mind as an economist i see this as a zero sum game you devote resources to 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 that sort of thing it takes away from you know other other causes so right okay thank you that those are great questions um i think i'm going to ask rupa please to have a go first and then anita i can ask you Okay, I mean I think just to answer the most recent question um about CSR, I think uh it definitely is playing a role in filling the gap because we have such an absence of government intervention and just capacity across so many different sectors that we need to uh address in the development sector. The problem that I see is that uh, on the other side CSR for certain companies are, is taken very seriously and there's an approach that works well with the philosophy of the company itself. for many other companies it's something that is has become um i think it looks like what csr would have been about a decade or 15 years ago in other places so it's something to talk about a bucket of a few things that someone might contribute to but it's not very it's, it might be wide breadth but not much depth um so i think again the coordination and the ability to think about what your strengths are as an individual company and leveraging that in the development sector would probably go a lot further than contributing to you know what what is very idiosyncratic sort of um decisions to give based on individuals or preferences um and so again i think that you're right on the infrastructure you know because there is such a lack of infrastructure a lot of 
private sector organizations are basically building it on its own and it could not, it, it probably isn't the best uh, way of being able to spend resources or time or energy, but quite frankly, uh, in the space of not being able to do anything else, that's where we get stuck. But what we're seeing with some of our infrastructure and our logistics companies as well is that anything that has any interface with land, and I would actually, Joe, say even in terms of philanthropy, I think that's the sector where I've seen the most corruption. Um, I think anything that has an interface with land in particular, um, you spend much more time dealing with being able to approach that and deal with what in some years is a Wild West kind of mentality where everything gets through, and then in other years, as retaliation, just shut down. So like as an example, in this state, we've just been experiencing shutdown. So I think the amount of time and effort dealing with that to be able to build your own infrastructure, which then isn't shared as a public good, is, is a huge waste. Great. Thanks, Rupa. Anita, do you have anything to add on that point? Yeah. I, um, you know, I have the, I'm going to talk about the corporate social responsibility, and I personally have a big problem with the S word, um, and that's social. I think corporate responsibility must encompass social responsibility as it encompasses everything else. What I mean by that is that whatever business you're in, if you've got a business model that takes into account that which you do best, uh, then that must become part of your corporate responsibility. So let me give you a specific example. Um, you know, the problem of undernutrition and malnutrition is a big one in India. I believe companies that are in the food space can contribute a lot by way of food-based solutions that have been found to be effective in other parts of the world. So simple things like food fortification, etc., are part of solutions that address a very big social issue, which is that of undernutrition and malnutrition. And if you can build that into your business model, uh, then that is the best way of dealing with corporate responsibility. So if healthcare companies were to look at issues related to healthcare as part of their business model, we would not have this need to talk about corporate social responsibility, which ends up being some sort of a philanthropic gesture, which has to do with some, you know, sums of money that are uh, stashed away, and um, uh, you know, nothing significant or nothing scalable comes out of it. So I think if every corporation were to think of its business and say, what are the things that we can do that make it inclusive? then we would deal with the social part of corporate responsibility. And we would also replace the S word with corporate sustainable responsibility, which then gets embedded as part of the business model. I think philanthropy is a little bit different if I've got a lot of money and I want to significantly impact an area, whether it is education or healthcare or you know, social reforms, then whoever I am, you know, the philanthropist, can actually put a stake in the ground and cause a transformative change to happen because I'm there funding it. And there are lots of great examples. You know, you think of the Bill and Mil Melinda Gates Foundation. They started with something very simple, which was that no child anywhere in the world should die of something which is preventable. And that led to polio and so on and so forth. So I think we've got some wonderful examples. Uh, around the world, as well as in India, where corporate responsibility gets embedded in the business model and therefore becomes sustainable, where philanthropy is used really to create an enduring and lasting change. Great, thank you. I think uh, the Tata Group is another great example Absolutely. of a company great. that's embedded CSR yeah. in its business model. And we see, for example, in its acquisitions in the UK, where, as many of you will know, it's now the UK's largest uh, private sector employer. 
And when it was bidding for Chorus and Jaguar Land Rover in about 2007, 2008, it was welcomed by the unions precisely because it's got a reputation for being a responsible employer. It subsequently managed to create substantial shareholder value, particularly in the Jaguar Land Rover acquisition. And I think that's a demonstration of how good CSR can lead to shareholder value if it's genuinely embedded in the business model. But I'd like to thank our panelists for their fantastic contributions and um, let's give them a round of applause. Thank you all very much. Thank you.